Welcome everyone to a continuation of the same theme, but you can see where this uh, sutta, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta takes us. It leads us wherever it goes, and it goes everywhere. So within the course of the year, we're not staying on the topic of mindfulness, but we're moving off as it moves off into the different areas of, of exploration. <clears throat> and uh, of course, by the guided meditation, you may sense that tonight's theme, or where the sutta takes us, is into death and dying, which you would be correct. And uh, I think the Buddha has a couple of reasons for doing this, which I'll explain further, but uh, he uh, has kind of gently uh, been breaking the thread of body attachment uh, as we have been going through the body. Uh, he started off with just an exploration and investigation of what the body is and seeing it that uh, it wasn't what we always thought it to be uh, and that we remember the body, making it the body, what we have known the body to be through our remembrance. And then he took us through some rather turbulent waters of repugnancy and uh, repulsion of the body uh, to show us that it's not as beautiful, this beautiful object that we keep con reconceiving moment after moment and trying to beautify and and that it, can, it also has a different perspective. If you look at it differently, it can also be seen as being pretty hideous. Uh, but that's just a perspective as well. So now he kind of breaks the remaining thread of any attachment we might have. And he does so through these stanzas, which I'd like to read. <clears throat> and then I'll comment on the stanzas. Furthermore, as he or she were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, one day, two day, three days dead, bloated, livid, festering, he or she applies it to his or her very body, this body too, such is its nature, such is its future, such is its unavoidable fate. Or again, as if he were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, picked by the crows, vultures, hawks, by dogs, hyenas, and various other creatures, a skeleton smeared with flesh and blood connected with tendons. <laughs> a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood connected with tendons, a skeleton without flesh or blood connected with tendons, bones detached from their tendons, scattered in all direction. Here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a shin bone, there a thigh bone, here a hip bone, there a backbone, here a rib, there a breastbone. There a tooth, there a skull, the bones whitened somewhat like the color of shells, piled up more than a year old, decomposed into a powder. He applies this to his or her very body. This too, such is the nature, such is its future, such is its unavoidable fate. In this way, he remains focused internally on the body in and of itself, or externally on the body in and of itself, or both internally and externally on the body in and of itself. Or he or she remains focused on the phenomenon or of origination with regard to the body, on the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the body, much as we did in the, in the uh, breath meditation. Or his mindfulness that there is a body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And he or she remains independent unsustained, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a person remains focused on the body 
of and in itself. So I, you know, the words are not always inviting. Here a bone, here a whitened tooth, here the you know, on and on. But the message is clear. Message is clear. It's an unavoidable fate. So I think um, I think it's inevitable that this sutta, which is very expansive and all inclusive, starts taking us through death and dying. That it has to. That there's no way that you can steer mindfulness away from the fact of our demise, of the fact of our ending. And I think the Buddha very deliberately sends the sutta in this direction because it's a culmination of wisdom, really, to be able to handle this subject without denial. And so I see four uh, meaningful messages within the passage that I just read, and I'd like to just say the four messages and then expound upon what those messages mean in an elaborative form. And the first one is, uh, to, let's stop pretending, let's change perceptions, and to stop denying the facts that are in front of ourselves. And I think he, he uses death, but virtually any fact that is irreputable, that's right there, that we have seen or we know is at hand, um, and yet we continue to wiggle our way out of, through blame, through accusation, by throwing the charge or the emotional charge off of ourselves, so that we can be free of whatever inconvenience that particular fact has, and to continue our life as if we were going to lead a continuous in-breath through the duration of our remaining years. And that just facing this, facing the cold, hard facts of our existence, the, the absolute facts of our life, in every form and in every detail, and not pretending in any way that we are not responsible for them, to be fully accountable to them, that we'll eventually al align ourselves to the fact of our death, because it's the one fact in which we hide a lot of other facts behind. It's one fact that most of us want nothing to do with. And so he brings out that big fact, the big enchilada, and he says, okay, look at this thing. Now, whatever else we're hiding besides this one, open, that, open to that too, open to that as well. And so I think that's one of the reasons he's being so brash with his language and so clear in his message about facing our death. The second thing, I, the second message that I think he is uh, offering here is that the body will die. Let's realize that fact. I mean, many of us um, know it uh, from a very early age, uh, but the realization of it, the imprint upon ourselves so that we take life as seriously as it needs to be taken, given the fact that it's going to end. See, we don't need to take anything seriously if it's going to continue to forever. We can frivol our, friv be frivolous and just kind of frolic our life away. But when we know it's going to end, it doesn't mean uh, that we become glum and, and uh, disgusted or full of gloom. It's a very 
it's, we have to be willing to go through that particular feeling of dread because when you start realizing the fact that death occurs, then there is a kind of dread and a fear that we have been pushing away that comes in. But if we hold our ground to that first wave of fear or that first sense of dread or that first need to contract around our life, which fear often holds in that first wave of, of what it means to die, if we just hold our ground to that, we'll see that there's much more on through this thing. It, it invites wisdom. It in, gives us a different expression, a different understanding of the breadth and scope of life and the sensitivity and appreciation to life that we might have missed in pretending that that particular subject is not at hand. So he wants us to realize that death, and he keeps saying it's the unavoidable fact. It's the unavoidable fact. And not to avoid the fact, basically. It's unavoidable. So that's the second message, which I will flush out in a minute or two. And then the third one is he wants to shine a light on death itself. He wants to show that death has been uh, given some bad publicity, a bad rap. <laughs> that it's really, you can't have life without this other side. And that if you want a sense of completion, and completion is where the meditation takes us, contentment, any way that you want to frame where we're going in meditation, has to be seen in terms of some sense of wholeness or completion. And that we're not going to ever achieve that completion if we keep death in the background. If we stick it a few rows back and let's get on with life and let's really understand and investigate life. You can't do that. So it's calling it forth. It's, it's the young child calling E.T. out of the cave, right? You know, come on out here. And E.T. coming out into the full light of what it means to be um, alive. <clears throat> so that's the third. And then the fourth uh, message, which I think he is making in this sutta, in this section or this passage of the sutta, is that freedom is intimately connected with death itself. That death, if studied and understood, holds freedom within the very concept, the very fact of it. Now that's interesting. I mean, yes, I can see it as being part of life, but how does death itself hold the deathless? Which is one of the ways that the Buddha describes freedom, the deathless. And so we can move our investigation into death itself to explore that concept. When I was uh, a monk um, in Asia, I uh, realized that uh, there was a lot of fear uh, around death for me. And I realized I needed to go and, and to work with the subject. And so I decided while I was a monk that when I left my robes that I would uh, enter into hospice care. I knew that years before I actually did it. And it all came to pass that I could do just that. And I felt that I needed to bring death into my life because so much of my 
procrastination, my uh, resistance had to do with fear of self-hurt or it just it had to do somehow it with the subject of death and dying or loss or grief but what I didn't realize which became apparent very quickly was that what I had been after in the forest why I had been sitting all those years in meditation was that the subject itself contained the prize that looking at the subject if we are willing to go through again the different layers of mental reactivity that we have to death one of which is fear that if we steadied the ship and stayed with the subject that it would coast its way towards something much more expansive much more complete than what I had originally intended the subject to do to me so I would like to dovetail this discussion and just um, uh, transgress for just a minute to what Ajahn Suchito talked about last week when he talked about the vortex of I. I think you might have remembered if you were here. He was talking about the sense that at the vortex of the triangle, the, the area where the, the uh, I guess it's vertex, and he was talking about the vortex, so where the whirlpool spins down, that sense of self, uh, self-centeredness. And then all the things we try to gather around the sense of self to prop it up, to make it feel that there's more to it than this idea of me. And we buy things and we cherish things and we, you know, we keep expanding our territorial property, our possessions outward, somehow to create a sense of me being bigger and more permanent than just this echo that we hear when we actually look at what the sense of I is. Right? So we, the vortex contains all of our shelters, all of our territories, all of our proclamations, all of our ideas, all of our self-images. Now, in that or within that vortex, bring death. Just call it in there. See what happens to that vortex when you allow that subject to enter. What, are, what is meaningful to you within that territorial reach when side by side you place death? Relationship? But all relationships are going to be separated and end by definition. You see, your possessions, well, that's so obvious that those are going to end. When you bring any of the subjects up, any of our collections, right, our stamp collections, all of our collections, <laughs> and then put this subject right beside it. Just, just bring the fact along with it. And then where does, where does our, what happens to our investment? What happens to our vitality, to our, to our need to keep it going, to sustain it? when you know at the same time, at the same moment, that the end is nigh. Hmm? So I like that. That's, that's what the Dharma is calling forth for us. But let's start slowly. Let's back off. I'm going too fast. I'm taking some of you much faster than you wanted to go. So we're going to ease back here. Let's, 
I know the subject well, so I'll go as fast as anybody wants to go. But at the same time, I have to take into consideration that some of you are like, what? <laughs> so let's go with, let's start with aging. Now, aging is moderate. And we all feel it, no matter what our age, we feel it, right? Just like the breath. You can feel your vitality if you're of youth, and you can feel your loss of vitality if you're my age. And so that sense of aging. And so what is the body saying in its depletion? See, where in the life cycle of the breath do we find ourselves? And when what was once where we, the body was so uh, easily handled, and you can account on it so it was held such faith because you know you could if you wanted to set a 10 mile hike for yourself over the weekend you could go and do it and be sure that you had the energy to sustain yourself but now you've got to wake up that day to see if you have that energy <laughs> so it begins to it begins to feel like decay is happening doesn't it it begins to feel like disorder this this is it shouldn't be this way. I should still be able to count on it. Why is this happening to me? See, we can make it very personal. <laughs> now, let me just give you a fact. In the course of human existence, there have been about 120 billion people who have lived on this earth. There are now six and a half billion. What happened to the 113 and a half billion of the others? And in the next hundred years, a catastrophe beyond catastrophes, that those six and a half billion in the next hundred years will all be dead. Now, if we had a catastrophe in which we said within a hundred years, six and a half billion people were going to die, we'd be shooting rockets at asteroids and finding medic medication cures. We'd be doing whatever we have to, and that is a fact, isn't it? It's going to happen. We're going to age and we're going to die. And the messages are there all along the way. Aren't the messages there? Even in your youth. I don't want to think about it. Well, you don't have to. Except that's the refrain, not only in your 20s, but your 30s and your 40s. And it gets more substantial in your 50s, 60s, and say, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. In fact, when we were in hospice care, we'd go out to give talks on hospice services. And I thought, being the director, that the best place to go would be to the retirement centers. You know, because they're the ones that are closest to, the, to what they're using our services. No, wrong. <laughs> Nobody would show up. It was, Nobody would come <laughs> because it was too close, you see. I should have given it, if I had I thought about it, to the children of the retired. <laughs> they would want to know about that. The retirement people don't want to know about that one at all. In fact, one of the refrains of hospice care is that uh, when people, when you go to the people's home, you have to have, sign a consent form that they are or they have a life-limiting illness with a matter of weeks to months to live, and they sign that consent form. But that doesn't mean that they've accepted the fact that they're going to die. And it's not our job to go in there and hit them over the head with that fact. 
Rather, there was a, just a basic understanding that the body would show them that they were going to die. That as the body changed, there was an irrefutable fact at some point when they would realize the fact that they were not going to get better, that they were not on the in-breath of their life. And even though they may have days in which they felt better than yesterday or better than last week, those days were just little spikes in a, in a negative sloped graph that was going to end. So let our bodies teach us now. The messages are there. The back pain, the creaky knees, the forgotten idea. <laughs> They're there. Don't just pass over them as, well, that's what a 50-year-old bind looks like. Or I'm just, you know, no, that there's something there. There's some way that this body is training us or showing us or indicating or directing us that it's going to take us. And that's what I mean by the realization of death. Because the realization of it gets into your bones. It gets into the marrow of your cells. And you say to yourself, my God. And then there's this feeling of like, ah, like the, the chips land, you know, they, you're on a slot machine and you hit the, and we all just come right down and go, oh, oh. So we start this subject lightly, believe it or not. <laughs> we don't want to be theoretical in our understanding. We don't want to pretend we want to make death conscious. And to make death conscious, because we understand that the path of a conscious human being is to keep whittling away at the unconscious areas of our life, those areas that we don't want to see and are well defended against. And as you start peeling back the layers, the onion layers, and exposing light to each of these things, you'll see that they, many of the strands of where the layers are pulled, pulled back have something to do with our fear of death and dying. And so it's helpful to have a personal reflection on death, to bring it forward, to make it an active understanding and investigation for our life. Now this is interesting because about 10 years ago, I wrote the book, Lessons from the Dying. And each of those chapters in that book have reflections and exercises associated with that chapter. I have met very few people, I could probably count them on one hand, maybe that's how many people bought the book, for one thing. <laughs> but I, but I can count the number of people on the hand who actually did the exercises or reflections. They wanted to read about it. They wanted to read and get a theoretical understanding. But the questions, but the realization of those chapters really lay in the exercises and the reflections. And I, I, I sense that that was bringing it too close home. Too close, it was too close to home. So, a theoretical understanding is what some of us, perhaps most of us in this room, want to have with this subject. But for those of you who would like to step closer to the subject, then I can bring forth some 
some homework, like the one that we have back there, which is a good homework subject to bring the, the subject into our life. But also, let's just look at some possibilities for ourselves. To do this, first of all, we have to have some sense of self-governance. That this is not for everyone. That this subject uh, brings up a lot. For everyone, it brings up a lot. And that some of us, we need to go, we need to self-monitor and go at our own pace here. So if this gets a little too uh, anxiety-provoking, you're welcome in this lecture only to leave <laughs> as you wish. Because I said, I don't want to force you into a subject that you don't want any part of. But, okay, I was watching uh, not too long ago an old movie. Uh, it was Cary Grant or something, it was probably 1930s, maybe 19, early 40s, but probably 30s. So I was just watching it. And it suddenly dawned on me, dawned on me, that everyone that I was seeing in this movie was dead. <laughs> Every one of them. And the scroll of the names, you know, afterwards, it was like an obituary column. It was just amazing. But they were so on top of their game at this particular movie, you know? There was such fight. There was, everybody was moving as if that wasn't even in the scene. And it wasn't for them. And it just reminds me of looking at a cross-section of the population, regardless of where we live. Just watch the streets, you know, and then add 50 years. And it's, so, it's, it's such a nice reflection sometimes to see the vitality of youth knowing that everyone uh, that you see has passed away. And some of, you know, uh, and then, okay, then, so old movies is one way to help reflect. Another one, if you're taking notes, <laughs> look, look at Roadkill. What, that squirrel, that possum, that raccoon, was, it didn't realize that there was something that was going to happen to it that day. It was after whatever it was after, nuts or whatever, roots. And just the serendipity of death, the absolute uncertainty, that it just, that, like, for, whoa, the preciousness of this moment. You can just feel it. Yes, there's the fear of that happening, which can force us to contract, but there's also this, wow, if this is, if I don't know, then how precious is this moment? My God, this is a precious moment. Because of the uncertainty, it takes away the procrastination, takes away the longevity, it takes away time. And we usually rely on time to give us some sense of distance from death. Now, there's a Buddhist story, many of you heard this because I've told it before, but it was a young woman who gave birth to a child and the child died and uh, was uh, unconsolable, inconsolable, whatever the word is, inconsolable in her grief. She carried the child on her shoulder uh, for days and finally uh, her 
extended family suggested that she go see the Buddha. And so she carries her child. She's refusing to say that the child is dead. She goes to the Buddha and she asks the Buddha to heal her child. And the Buddha looks at the child. Of course, he knows it's dead, but he says, okay, I'll heal it. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and bring me one mustard seed from a home that has not experienced death. So you ask the home if they've experienced death. If they haven't, ask them to give you one mustard seed, and that one mustard seed will be the potion I need to heal your child. So the woman goes off, and because everyone was living in extended families back then, every door she knocked on, of course, the family would come out and say, of course, I've, I've had many deaths in this family, many, many deaths. And she would go from one home to another, hearing the same uh, tale of tragedy that that had befallen that household until finally it dawned on her. It dawned on her. Something got through that this child was dead and that this was not an unnatural, personal, universal um, uh, um, punishment. And she went back to finish the story. She went back and she allowed her child to be buried and she ordained as a nun. I have a friend who was on the board of, of uh, SIMS, Seattle Insight. Uh, one of the early members of Seattle Insight and a longtime student who I married actually and uh, he, uh, la last maybe two or at the most three years ago, had a stroke in which uh, they had to take out a piece of his skull and part of his brain. And now he's essentially wheelchair bound, unable to communicate in any way that uh, is consistently as he used to. He can say words and express ideas. He's very much alive, but Limited, limited. And to think this body is so fragile, it's just amazing that there's a exhalation after an inhalation. It's really just precariously perched, rocking all the time towards one side or the other. And what does that bring forth from us? What is that asking us? Where, what is that encouraging from us, that precariousness of life? Because what can happen, and which often does happen, is that we get very contracted around the possibilities of it teetering towards one side or the other, falling off the cliff. And one of the ways that we know that death is active within our mind and working its fear relationship upon our mind is the sense of body concern that many of us have. If there's anything wrong, whatever it might be, it causes us a contraction, a fear. Oh my God, what is this? An overreaction. Not that you shouldn't be concerned if there's something wrong with the body, but to that overreaction. Or also, the overcompensation of, for your loved ones. 
Oh, if they're out just a little while longer, if they are driving traffic, you know, and you're worried, the sense of worry, that sense of, of needing to constantly make communication with them, and that constant referencing that goes on for many of us can be traced to the realization of the precariousness of life, but without the contentment and appreciation that such an image can bring to us, rather than the fear reaction that it often brings. Malarepa, who is the Tibetan yogi, said, quoted to say, in brief, without being mindful of death, whatever dharma practice you take up will be merely superficial. How am I actively keeping this information away from me? What am I doing? That's the first legitimate inquiry that many of us should make. How am I actively sidestepping the subject? You know, there's the roadkill. It's not as if that squirrel were running along inside your, it's dead. How am I re relating to death when I see it in my everyday life? And that over-concern of the body. It's very interesting to me because, see, for us, death means the ending of time, doesn't it? It's the ending of what we have known life to be. Now, it's interesting because grasping, attachment, wanting, desire is an attempt to prolong ourselves in time. It's saying, what here is not good enough? I need something that I haven't got right now and that I need to grasp something that's just out of reach. But give me enough time and I'll have it within myself. So it's a prolongation of self. It's an active, concerted effort to deny death. You see? It's very helpful to get a sense of the way we're formed mentally that tries to counteract this physical realization that we all know is going to happen. It's in there. The realization is in there. We all know we're going to die. We just haven't let it sit quietly in our consciousness so that the realization is, so that it's realized. But we actively fight it. And one of the ways we fight it is through our grasping because life continues on. It carries forth in our grasping, doesn't it? And continuity, the sense of being continuous, is something that we play forth every day. Like, see you again. The, the sense that what we, I was just uh, in Bend, Oregon, I was performing a marriage for my nephew, who got married, and it was kind of like a family reunion. And as we were leaving, everybody would, I, I heard it, everybody was saying when they would see us the next time, you know, because we're supposed to go to my niece's wedding in a year from now. So, oh, I'll see you in a year, if not sooner. That kind of continuity. Well, I just had a brother. I'm 63. 
My brother was 66. He died of a massive heart attack. My other brother, whose, nephew, whose son just got married, is 65 and has had one heart attack already. What's the, you know, he may well, within everyone's expectation, not make it to next year. I mean, he's not intimately suffering or critically ill, but just the family genetics seems to indicate that we have a short lifespan, us Smiths. <laughs> so what is all this, I'll see you, you know, what is all that? That's a hope, a wish, isn't it? Let that sit with you for a while. Because you see, what we're doing with death is we're denying some basic truths that are key for our Dharma practice. You can't have these truths without going through this subject. What are those truths? One is the truth of stillness. I've said it many, many times that this practice moves us from a very noisy thinking, compelled thinking, thought, to stillness, to quiet. But the problem is, is that we equate stillness and quiet with death. And we think the noisier we are, the more alive we are. So if I can just stay noisy inside, I can keep myself going. Which is one of the reasons we're so motivated to think, because that's our inward noise that sustains ourselves. Noise represents life to us. Stillness represents death. But you can see if stillness represents death, how are we ever going to get to stillness without going through the subject? Epicurus, a Greek philosopher said, why should I fear death when I am Death is not, and with death is, I am not. But the sense of self, which is formed on noise, the image of me, the egoic sense of me that is formed from noise, holds itself as the, at the vertex or the vortex of a claim. And for it to release its need for the world in terms of possessions, in terms of its territory, is for it the worst death, far worse than the physical death. And so we define life as movement, rapid movement, and noise. So let me just talk for a moment about the rapid movement and speed. As I mentioned, to keep me going, I keep my noise going and deny stillness. We keep time going through the noise that we generate. Future, past, looking up ahead, planning, worrying, regretting, all of that keeps me very much on the continuum of past to future. And the speed we travel to the future 
the need to go very quickly, the pressure. Many, most of us have played this one out, the stress we feel, the pressure we're under, to do the next thing, to get over, to be productive, to do that second thing. The faster we go, we don't have to notice what happens within time when we go fast, do we? If you go fast enough, everything's a blur. You don't have to really notice what is occurring when you go fast. Because you're so interested in where you're going, you're uninterested in what is actually happening as you go. And what is happening as we go is death. So no wonder we want to stay going fast and pressured and stressed and not have enough time and feel like the candle is being burnt at both ends. Because to stop, we have to realize that things terminate, that things end, that this isn't a continuation, that it has an ending. And another way we do the same thing is quantify rather than qualify our life. The more things we have, the more things. If we focus on having more, then the quality of our existence, what actually occurs, the relationship that occur within our existence don't have to become the focus. Because what happens to the relationship is that they are born and then they separate. They come together, connect, and then they separate. So if I can focus on the quantity of things that I have, I don't have to notice the parting of the relationship that was that's within that. You see? You see how we, these are all ways that we actively assert a denial of death and dying. And you can see that each one of those holds the vitality of the Dharma within them. We've been talking about nothing else for all the years we've been doing this together. But having a clear relationship with the moment, of slowing down, of connecting, of seeing. But how many of us, truthfully, have allowed our lives to slow down? And could it be because we haven't brought this subject to bear and to really look at it? We like the idea of slowing down. We love the idea of meditation. It sounds good. It sounds like it would be a nice offset to all of our stress. But when we start slowing down, we start realizing what we're facing as we slow down. And so we stay paced. It's just, if your Dharma practice hasn't begun to move you in that direction of connection and consideration and appreciation, could it be because the subject reigns in your mind with such fear and trepidation? And might that not indicate a need to explore that subject or at least become familiar with it, to allow ourselves to be exposed to it gently in your own time, but for, but moving forward with it, not pretending that it doesn't exist. And because we don't think, this is very interesting to me, I, I don't know if you are, but I'm off and running. <laughs> we don't think death is fair. We don't. I mean, children shouldn't die before their parents, but they do sometimes. Big fish shouldn't eat small fish, but they do. Death isn't fair. So what do we do? 
we bring our own logic and fairness and justice that has nothing at all to counteract the unfairness of death, we make sense of fairness and justice a high standard for ourselves. You're not fair. But if you look at the world and take in the law of life, it's not fair. People die at different ages. And good people sometimes die before prisoners. So we assert, to counteract that law, we assert our own law, our livable law. Now I just want to say a word about two things. We're close to the end, so just be patient here. One is that death is not the opposite of life. And I tried to show us that in the guided meditation this afternoon. Where lifespan, the movement of life, has to have a beginning and an ending. And we can't cut off the ending and claim to have a full representation of what life offers. And this is a hard one because we think that life is the living. Life is the in-breath. It isn't even the aging. It's the first, what, 45 years, 50 years, till we get middle age. I don't know what middle age is, but 50. And therefore, we discount the elders. We don't want to see elders. They don't hold the standard or infuse the respect. Our respect is with the youth. And many cultures, it's the elders that have the most respect because they have the life experience and wisdom. But we are so overweighted in terms of the vitality factor and terms of the youthful energy, the elders have really no place for us. And the second thing I want to emphasize, just as the last point this evening, is that death is never personal. God, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? A Dharma student, let that end. Just drop that one from our vocabulary. Why, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? Just drop that one. There's no explanation for it. Perhaps from your perspective, it's unfair. But that's not the perspective of the fact. It's not picking on you. No one's there to pick on you. And you can deal with the fact when we're not shunting the responsibility or blaming the responsibility for something abstract and unseen. The doctor missed the tumor. He didn't try to not find the tumor. He missed it. It's not personal. I mean, if somebody takes a gun and shoots you, you can claim some personal reference. Other than that, it's not personal. And life is the same. Let's just deal with it as we deal with it. It's not going to look like the life we want to live or the expectations we have for it. It's never going to look like that. It's never going to be your storybook life. It's going to look like it looks right now. It's going to look like 
the peaks and valleys that all of us go through. It's not going to be flat and level. And if that can't be our life, what is it going to be? What are we going to call our life that's workable if we're waiting for a particular valley reference, a flat land? This is it, folks. Pain, illness, youth, middle age, and death. And let's find some purpose and some quality within that. Thank you. Can we sit for a few minutes? Now as you sit, just let the subject sit with you. Put it on your lap. Be gentle with it. Ask yourself if you want to know or grow closer to the subject. Remembering that your fear response to it is just the initial reaction. It has layers upon layers of information and wisdom to offer you. It's not as if by denying that fact you're therefore isolating yourself from it so that death won't happen. To deny the fact means that there's a certain rigidity of consciousness that has to be held in order for you not to think about it. That tension can be relieved if we just sit with the subject a little. Read the obituaries. Look at the road kills. Notice the transition from day to evening and from evening back to day. Okay. If there are any questions or comments, thank you all for your attention. Thank you. It's not an easy subject, and I appreciate no one having left. <laughs> so if you have anything you'd like to ask, please. Yes. My mother died when I was 17. Yes. Yes. And I now have a daughter. Yes. And I worked through all these exercises that we did a few years ago when we did 12 weeks on death and dying. Yes. And I don't feel like I can move very far with it because I feel so strongly that I must stay alive so that she doesn't suffer like I did. Oh, bless your heart, dear. Bless your heart. I, I really hear that. Um, she's saying that when she was 17, her mother died, and she has a daughter now, and that. Uh, she can't completely relax to the subject of death because she feels so strongly that she must stay alive for her daughter. And I appreciate that uh, reaction. I really do. That that's, um, has come from your uh, history and from uh, the pain that was caused you by having lost your mother. 
Uh, and, but look, at the, look for a minute at the other side of the issue. That, that kind of, of um, bare-knuckle approach that you're going to stay alive, you know, and I think that the chances are overwhelming that you will until she lives, has an offside, off has an other side to the issue, has a fear component to it, has a contraction around your life or your body, and probably has a contraction around her and what she does and your fear for what she does. And that extends itself out in far-reaching ways, like who she meets and who her friends, it goes way out there because the fear tentacles don't just stop with the death of the body. They go into the psychology and on and on. And so if you look at the, the experience that you had with your mother and you survived, and you're as well as you are. So it wasn't the catastrophe, although it probably felt that way at 17, it wasn't the catastrophe that you thought about. And to bring back the love of your mother and the sense that you're okay within that love, and so that you can feel that 17-year-old's thrashing around in fear contraction within the fact that you're okay now and the love you still have for your mother, and just let, that, let the, some of that reactivity and some of that fear expose itself within the confines of your knowledge that you are fine here and now. Hmm? And so just airing it, air the experience a little bit. Um, maybe you want to do this very gently. You know, look out five years after your mother died, then four years, then three years, then two years, what it was like for you at different times from your mother's death, and then one year and then the time when your mother died, and what you saw and what you experienced, and feel that, and let yourself feel emotionally what you feel that, so that you're exposing that soar to the information of you being okay now. And as that begins to heal itself, so will you begin to loosen the grip of, that is caused by that reaction and fear on your daughter. Now the conditioning may be such that it's no longer associated with death, it's just a gripping. So then you have to look at that particular fear itself and what it wants for itself. And begin to relax that fear and see the limitation of the fear in the, gri in the gripping, the knee-jerk response to grip and to hold on for itself. Very, and if it can be helpful to you uh, therapeutically to, to, to talk with a therapist, I, I don't find, I find, I encourage that all along the way. I think there's very, a lot of really good healing that can go on between therapist and, and uh, something like that where you have certain, uh, have an, uh, arrested a certain part of yourself in, in a particular time that can be explored very um, patiently with a therapist and open to and could be very helpful to you. Thank you for that. Yes. Um, my mother died when I was five years old. Yes. And it's been a really long journey. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. 
Yes, she says that uh, her mother died at five years old and she has felt the uh, incredible suffering associated with that and the contraction, but also some of the beauty and relationship as this has moved out. Now, one of the things that most people don't realize about death, or said differently, about grief, is how close that is to a dharma opening, to a vulnerability. If you've had a loss, you can't really cover the loss and say this didn't happen and pretend to be um, invulnerable or whatever, not vulnerable again. You, that your, 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 your heart is, has a, is raw, it's exposed. And you can't pretend otherwise. And that's why we grieve. We grieve the exposure. We grieve the loss. But at the same time, there's something that's very close. If you look out from uh, grief, you'll see that it kind of tenderizes everything you see. You, you get a sense of everything being tender and close at hand. And everything touches you in a way. It, it feels as if the wind is almost special you know, and light, and everything has a, has a hyper sense to it. And this is a raw and exposed heart, right? Now, what mostly happens when we lose something is that we can cover it up and blame it on somebody very quickly and go from the vulnerability of grief to the certainty and righteousness of anger. And anger then freezes us in position and allows us to move forward, but without the sense of tenderness, to anything else because we've closed the heart off. But when a grief is so dramatic that you can't blame it on somebody, it just happened, and we certainly try to blame it, believe me, that sense of exposure is very close to the truth. You can feel it. What happens though is that we get so uh, focused on the story of the emotional side of it that many of us miss the exposure and innocence of the vulnerability itself. A an awake mind is a vulnerable heart. And so we can use grief, we can use grief, we can see it, we can begin to get very close to life through grief, if we're willing to use it that way. And I'm not saying that there isn't pain to grief, but it is a safe pain, believe me, it is safe. If you're willing to let the grief go and move as it moves and not keep thinking this shouldn't be happening to me and why am I still grieving and oh, I'm going crazy and all of the ways that we get sidetracked because it is a very complicated emotion. It's also a very safe passage, a very safe passage. It may feel as if you're going insane at some point and it may be very helpful to be around other people who have had loss because they'll also say that they think they're going insane too. And within that commonality of insanity comes the appreciation of presence. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much.